produced by WBUR and the Boston Globe. Certain people really did take their job seriously, and then others really did not. This is ridiculous. And that he would open up the doors of this museum for a psychedelic party for him and his uh, random friends is incredible. What did you see when you, when you watched the video from the night before? It was not a guard checking to make sure the doors were secured and locked. It was somebody being let in after hours and being let in where the robbers went almost exactly 24 hours later. Do you suspect the guards of collusion? No. I don't think they're smart enough. I mean, this is a big league. This isn't AAA ball down in Pawtucket. This is Fenway Park. This is Martin Lepo, a big league criminal defense attorney with some strong opinions about the greatest art heist in history. Let me say this way. The Garden Museum robbery was so easy. It's a wonder there wasn't a tsunami of burglars coming in and do it. They have musicians guarding millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of paintings. Musicians. That's like putting Dracula in charge of a blood bank. It's so foolish and stupid that it's, it's, uh, it almost invited the place to be robbed. At 86, Lepo is still practicing. He says if there's one thing to know about him, it's that he's loyal to his wife of 51 years, to his three sons, even the two who've given him some heartache, and to the veritable rogues gallery of clients he's represented over the years. Men whose rap sheets span decades and crimes. There's a lot. There's a lot of cases. A lot of murders, a lot of uh, organized crime cases, um, a lot of disorganized crime cases. Armed robberies, drug deals, armored cars, stick-up jobs, you name it. But it's the crime that gave Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum the dubious distinction of being the scene of the single largest art theft in history that seems to hold special meaning for Lepo. Framed reproductions of some of the stolen paintings hang in his law offices, including one he's especially partial to, the concert by Vermeer. The painting just talks to you. It's just so wonderful, magnificent. I think if you can't appreciate art, you know, from one of the great masters. Um, what else is there? If Lepo takes a particular interest in the Gardner heist, it isn't only because he feels the loss of what was stolen. It's also because he just might know who did it. No other defense attorney has represented more criminals who have been tied, if only unofficially, to the Gardner case. Seven in all. They are men Lepo has long defended for other crimes. And while he won't comment on what they might have known about the plan to steal some of the most valuable and beloved treasures from Isabella Stewart Gardner's collection, he will say this about whoever pulled off the robbery. This wasn't done by a bunch of uh, jamokes. Because this was a well-organized, a well-organized thing. Proof is in the pudding. They haven't found a thing. By they... Lepo means the FBI. And he's right. In the 28 and a half years since the heist, they haven't found any of the stolen masterpieces. 
But one of the places the FBI has been looking at the longest reveals a lot about who they think might be behind this still unsolved crime. It's a car repair shop called TRC Autoelectric, a place hard to beat for criminals per capita. And if many of the men suspected of planning or pulling off the Gardner heist have needed Martin Lepo's services, it's because of other crimes they hatched at TRC. The question is, was the plan to rob the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum one of them? From WBUR Boston and the Boston Globe, this is Last Scene. I'm Kelly Horan. And I'm Jack Rodolico. Episode 3, Not a Bunch of Jamokes. All right. I might pull over for a second just to make sure I think I'm going the wrong way. If one road to some of the suspects in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist leads to the law offices of Martin Lepo, Another leads to 1325 Dorchester Avenue in the Dorchester neighborhood of Boston. One day last summer, Kelly drove there with the Gardner Museum's head of security, Anthony Amore. Your destination is on the left. Wait, here? That's it. That's TRC Auto. Really? Yep. <laughs> in my mind, it was a much, a much greater thing. Okay. Picture a low-slung brick and cinder block building much longer than it is wide, with corrugated metal doors. There's a spindly tree on the sidewalk out front, its canopy too sparse to offer shade under a withering July sun. There's everything you'd expect to find at a mechanics, an assortment of vehicles, hoods up, three open repair bays, and spare tires and parts leaning against an exterior wall painted an industrial beige. What there isn't is any suggestion whatsoever that the former TRC Autoelectric was, in its heyday, a front for a thriving hub of criminal activity. It's only about four miles from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, but this place could not feel farther away. That's true. It is a world away. You know, you go from this Italian Renaissance palazzo that Isabella Stewart Gardner built uh, to resemble the one she loved to stay in in Venice... And here we are at a single-story brick building that's just a, a real different look. <laughs> but it is a great place for a crime headquarters, right? People coming and going all day, it's perfect. Completely inauspicious, too. I mean, I would have driven right by it if, if I didn't have you in the car to right, say this Right, but the police it. knew. And the police knew it because the man who presided over TRC Autoelectric was an underworld powerhouse with mafia ties and a long criminal record. His name was Carmelo Merlino. He was um, involved in a lot of different bank heists. He was heavily involved in cocaine dealing out of TRC. Um, There wasn't any sort of crime he didn't have his hand in. Carmelo Merlino was a criminal the way other people are in a religious order. He seemed called to it, and he was devoted. The same is true, Amore says of the assorted low lives Merlino had swirling around him at TRC. They study crime, they, not the history of crime. They study the newspapers and say, hey, did you hear so-and-so did such-and-such? Such. Um, it's the way baseball fanatics might follow the Red Sox. 
One thing I've learned doing this reporting is that they also meet each other in prison. It's crime college. <laughs> and Merlino would be at Walpole, and he would have the most desirable cell. He would be in really well with the prison leadership because he was likable and people listened to him. And uh, I don't want to say it's like that scene in Goodfellas where, you know, they go to jail and it's a big party and people are cutting up garlic for their pasta sauce. But Merlino made the best of it. In the late 1980s, Carmelo Merlino's side hustle in car repair wasn't fooling anyone. He knew nothing about how to fix cars, but he had a real flair for turning cocaine dealt out of carburetor boxes into millions of dollars in cash. Between 1989 and 1991, a stretch of time that includes the hit on the Gardner Museum, state and local police, in conjunction with the U.S. Attorney's Office and the DEA, had TRC Auto Electric under surveillance. Robert Sakellis was a fairly new assistant attorney general for Massachusetts at the time. He recalls being part of the massive effort to make sense of it all. We had the wiretaps on TRC and Carmelo Merlino's home phone. All conversations I ever saw were all cryptic and coded. I mean, nouns were, nouns were off limits with this group. They never said a name, they never said a place or anything. And we had situations where we were convinced that an important meeting was going to take place, given the discussion surrounding it, and then it turned out to be an innocuous, you know, lunch or something with a, an aunt. So it was very, very hard to really try to piece together what it is they were talking about. And the foot traffic in and out of there was, was uh, utterly amazing. I mean, there was hundreds of people coming and going. It was a mini Grand Central Station. So trying to piece all this together and understand exactly what was happening um, was exceedingly difficult. But not impossible. By 1992, Sikelis and his team had amassed enough evidence to indict Carmelo Merlino and members of his crew on cocaine trafficking charges. In response, Merlino pulled a play straight from the gangster handbook. He offered authorities a quid pro quo. Give me leniency, and I'll give you a stolen painting. Our colleague from the Boston Globe, Steve Kirkchen, says when Merlino made this offer, he also made himself a suspect in the Gardner heist. And that might have been the point. It was a terrific feint, um, because I don't think, A, he knew anything about the Gardner heist at the time, uh, and it really complicated his life. But it did absolutely get the attention of the state police and the assistant attorney generals, including Sikelis. Now, if you're on the hook for one bad crime, why on earth would you want to raise your hand and make yourself a suspect in a worse one? Why would Merlino want to face that kind of heat? Who wouldn't want to be prince of the city? Find these paintings and you emerge prince of the city. All of your sins are forgiven. You know, you come back and you have helped, you know, civilized society, the museum, in the art-loving world, young and old, uh, to get these paintings back. This notion, this prince of the city ideal, offers an insight into nearly every Gardner Heist suspect that we've investigated. Because, like Carmelo Merlino, each of these guys, at one point or another, shot his hand up and said, essentially, I did it, or I know who did it, or I know where the paintings are. The criminal mind is nothing if not an aspirational one. Why wouldn't you want your name attached to the greatest score of all time? Carmelo Merlino wasn't going to be crowned the prince of anything. 
because the painting he dangled wasn't a Rembrandt slashed from its frame at the Gardner Museum. It wasn't a Vermeer or a Manet or even a Degas sketch. It was a portrait of George Washington that had been stolen in 1985 from the Henry Wadsworth Longfellow House in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Its estimated value at the time was $5,000. Hardly the kind of bounty that doubled as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Merlino was going back to prison. A lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Six years later, in November 1997, Carmelo Merlino, out of prison and back at the helm at TRC Auto Electric, had a new hire at the garage, a younger guy he'd known for a long time, both in and out of prison. Unlike Carmelo Merlino, though, this guy really could fix cars. His name was Anthony Romano. He also answered to Tony. Uh, He looked up to Carmelo, uh, admired him. And in fact, when Anthony was in prison, he ran into Carmelo, and Carmelo took care of him. And uh, Tony said, geez, that guy, he was respected in prison. Anything he said went with the other prisoners. Retired FBI agent David Nadalski spent 21 years at the Bureau. He has the tidy haircut and good posture you associate with a G-man. He has the warmth and easy laughter you don't. Nadalski says Anthony Romano was not a thug just a guy who made bad choices. He says he was a central casting image of a junkie convict, alarmingly thin, stringy hair, lots of tattoos at a time before everybody had one. And then as parole would come up, he would get out and he would be good for a while and then he'd get back into drugs and then he'd be sticking up places again with a toy gun and he'd be back in prison. So that's basically his pattern. Um, Never did he hurt anyone. I assess him as someone who really regretted the way things turned out for himself and he wanted to do something about it. I think he wanted to make a difference and I think he wanted to matter to somebody. While still in prison, Anthony Romano had reached out to Nadalski at the FBI with a tip that led to the recovery of valuable manuscripts stolen from the John Quincy Adams Library in Quincy, Massachusetts. Romano had even been right about who'd stolen them. So based on this... I I determined Anthony was uh, truthful and reliable with information. When he got out of prison, he asked to meet with me, wanted to talk about some information that had come his way concerning the Gardner uh, theft. This was only six years after the Gardner heist. People still talked about it all the time. One of those people, according to Romano, was Carmelo Merlino. Eventually, it was clear that he was getting the impression that Mello, Carmelo Merlino goes by the name Mello, knew where the paintings were or, or thought he knew where they were or, and somehow or other 
wanted to get a hold of the paintings. He, Tony didn't think he was actually part of the robbery, but was working on getting the reward by finding the paintings. Nadalski wasn't assigned to the Gardner case. He worked major crimes that fell under federal jurisdiction, like bank robberies and armored car jobs. So he pulled in the special agent who was leading the FBI's Gardner investigation at the time, Neil Cronin. I was basically introducing him to Anthony and letting Anthony tell him what he knew, knew about Gardner or suspected. And not very long after that, Tony told me that uh, Carmelo Merlino wanted to rob the Loomis Fargo vault facility in Easton. For the Boston FBI, Tony Romano was essentially a two-for-one informant. His notes on the comings and goings and conversations he observed inside TRC helped Nadolsky work on his angle on Loomis, and they helped Cronin work his on the Gardner. We obtained Anthony Romano's confidential informant reports, or 302s, between October 1997 and November 1998, one name appears in them more than any other alongside Carmelo Molino's, Fat Richie. That's not the name his mother gave him. Fat Richie was born Richard Tchaikovsky. Picture a sharply dressed Bostonian missing all of his hair and some of his front teeth, with an inexplicable Brooklyn accent and a career as a scam artist as vast as the man himself was large, which is not to say tall. One day, Fat Richie called the Boston supervisor of the FBI squad that oversaw the Gardner case. Fat Richie didn't introduce himself, but he didn't have to. And he actually said to the caller on the phone, he goes, Are you Fat Richie? Because <laughs> the guy hadn't identified himself. And he goes, there was a big pause. And he goes, well, some people do call me that. Nadolsky says Fat Richie told him and Agent Cronin that he could get the paintings from Carmelo Merlino. And uh, he says, but fuck him. You know, if I can get the five mil by getting the paintings from him, that's what I want out of this. He goes, I'll turn on him. So we just looked at each other and said, this is beautiful. And that's how Richie Tchaikovsky, a.k.a. Fat Richie, became the second confidential informant inside TRC Autoelectric. We obtained Fat Richie's 302s, and they are full of instances of Carmelo Molino promising to deliver the paintings. In one dated January 6, 1998, Fat Richie reported that Merlino planned to return half of the stolen paintings and hold the rest for security. Merlino had also reportedly said to Richie, quote, I've got the news you've been waiting for. I have the Vermeer and the Rembrandt. For the FBI... It must have been a shining moment. They had two informants ratting on two heists, one, the Loomis hit in the planning stages, and the other, the Gardner robbery, still casting its long shadow over the city. Just maybe, the one that had yet to happen would yield clues, or better still, an arrest, in the one that had yet to be solved. It was at this point that the feds offered Carmelo Merlino a quid pro quo of their own, a letter of immunity from prosecution in exchange for the stolen art. But he assured Neil, he goes, I don't have them. He goes, if I had them, I'd take that five million, I'd give them to you. He goes, I'm just as interested in finding them as you are. I want to get the money. 
The feds didn't buy it. They knew Merlino kept that immunity letter from the U.S. Attorney's Office taped under his desk at TRC. Why would he need it if he was only in it for the reward? If only they had leverage, some other crime they could squeeze him on to make him talk about what he knew about the Gardner heist. Something like an armored car vault robbery. He had told Tony that he was not just thinking of it, he was planning it. He was going on surveillances. He was sizing it up. He wanted to do this. And the way he wanted to do it was to put somebody on the inside who he could trust. In other words, get somebody in there as an employee that's willing to give it up when when the time came. That was his big plan. He wasn't going to go in there guns blazing. He wanted to go in there and have have it set up already that the place was going to fall. There's nothing like being jammed up on one whopping federal crime to make a bad guy sing about what he knows about another one. That was the hope, anyway. Coming up, the second sting in a decade on TRC Autoelectric. And it's all down to secret recordings made from inside Anthony Romano's pants. But it's a little bulky. It's about three inches by four inches and an inch wide. Uh, And then it's got wires coming out of it with microphones. And so I pull that out and I go, Tony, I'm going to have you put this in a belly band in your back. He looked at it and he goes, that fucking thing looks like a refrigerator. I can't wear that. And I said, Tony, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. The entire time that Carmelo Molina was making claims about the Gardner paintings, he was also planning a strike on the Loomis Fargo Armored Car Vault Facility, about 23 miles south of TRC, in Easton, Massachusetts. The Loomis heist presented just the chance the feds needed. They didn't have any proof that Merlino really did have access to the Gardner paintings, so they sought the next best thing, pressure him on a different crime, one serious enough to make him give up whatever he knew about the gardener. David Nadolsky had a come-to-Jesus moment with his informant, Anthony Romano. He'd have to do two things. Introduce an undercover FBI agent to pose as the inside guy at Loomis and wear a wire to catch Merlino and his accomplices planning the takedown. And this case is going to be made on conversations that that Mello and others have regarding the, the theft. So, as we discussed... You're wearing the wire now, right? And he said, yeah, I'll wear it. And I said, you know that you're, if, when this happens, if it goes and, it, and you know, we make arrests, you, you got to testify in court, right? Yeah, I know. You got to leave the state, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I said, okay, and this is going to change your life drastically, right? Yeah, I know. He goes, that's okay. I, I don't want, I'm sick of Boston anyway. I want to go somewhere else. Anthony Amore says the stakes for Romano could not have been higher. He wore a wire inside that place right there that we're looking at, uh, a place that professional, ruthless, vicious criminals were in and out of every day. One misstep would have cost him his life on the spot, and he did it anyway because he wanted to redeem himself. It wasn't about getting out of any sort of sentence. He didn't have to. 
I told Tony, all you need to do is bring up the subject that you got a guy on the inside. Shut your mouth and let him do all the talking. For all of his misgivings, for all of how maddeningly terrifying it must have been to walk into that garage with a recorder strapped to his body in the midst of the baddest of bad guys, Romano was smooth. He was a natural. Here he is in one of the secret FBI recordings that we obtained, floating the news to Merlino that he found a guy on the inside at Loomis. Remember, uh, remember we talked about that Easton thing? Yeah. The big, the big one. But, uh, I got a guy in there. How is he? I've known him for a long time. I got a guy in there. And this, remember I told you this is too big for me? What does it mean for me? No. I'm talking 30 to $50 million. And it was gold. It was gold. I mean, Tony just went in there, gave the cover story, said, hey, remember I wanted to do that job at Loomis? And I come across a guy who actually works there. You've been asking me to get a guy in. There's a guy in there, and I know him, and he's willing to do it. He's willing to cooperate with us. And Mello doesn't really ask any questions. She just goes, wow, really? He goes, yeah, but the thing is, Mello, it's too big for me. I need your help. And he goes, well, it's not too fucking big for me. And then he just goes on and on and on about how he's going to plan it, run it. Uh, He's going to do this. He's going to do that. He's going to bring his crew in. That crew had yet to be assembled, but one thing was certain. They would be experienced and they would be discreet. Here's Merlino explaining the consequences of indiscretion to Romano. It's going to go six ways. Mm-hmm. There's S2, the screw, and the other three. Mm-hmm. So everybody gets an equal end, and that's it. They're veterans, they've been around. You're all right, though, right? Huh? You're all right. I have to worry about them. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I'm going to say is, listen, everybody's going to make one pack, no discussion about it or nothing. Anybody spends more money than they, than they show, they got to get clipped. As long as everybody knows it, that's what's going to happen. You don't have to worry about them, Merlino says. They're veterans. But anyone spends more than they should, they're going to get clipped. In his world, no one was above paying with his life. Merlino and his hand-picked Loomis Heist crew, four men in all, plus Tony Romano, had one of their final meetings in a car in a CVS parking lot across the street from a Bickford's pancake house. It was January 1999. Romano was recording and transmitting the meeting to agents hiding nearby. So I was sitting in a car along with a billion other agents listening to the conversation as it was taking place because if anything went wrong, we had to move in fast. But nothing went wrong, and nobody suspected anything. Neil Cronin had great ears, and he goes, do you remember, did you hear him saying about the uh, bringing a hand grenade? I said, no, I didn't, but that was on the tape. That's considered a weapon of mass destruction, and that doubles your time. That live hand grenade alone would mean a minimum mandatory sentence of 30 years in prison. So here was the plan. Merlino and his crew would storm the facility, take down their inside guy and the other guard on duty, empty the vaults, stuff the loot in a stolen Loomis armored car, and then race back to TRC to divide up their spoils. Merlino expected the take to be upwards of $50 million. 
Nadalski says the tally in the vaults that weekend was actually more like 100 million. It was go time. The plan was for them to come together at TRC early in the morning. So we had 100 million cops out there. We had the surveillance squad in the air. We had the surveillance squad on the ground. We had uh, police everywhere, but everybody's hidden. I had Tony take his car, park it outside TRC, go in, turn the lights on, and uh, then jump back into my car and take off. So we took off. And so Mello pulls up, he sees the, Tony's car, lights on, goes in, or starts to go in, and he gets jumped by the SWAT team and taken down. The sting was going as planned. After nabbing Merlino, the SWAT team took out the next accomplice to arrive at TRC. Two down, two to go. But where were they? Nadolsky remembers feeling that something wasn't right. They just drove by. And then they came around the block again, and they drove by again. And didn't stop. And they came back to TRC and... For whatever reason, they decided this this doesn't smell right, and they took off. And so the SWAT team decided to, in the event that these guys were going to run, that they were going to uh, get on them. They drove up onto the sidewalk and started tearing down the sidewalk, and the SWAT vehicle uh, collided with them. And the SWAT guys jumped out, smashed out the windows, and dragged them out of the car. Um, and locked him up. And Anthony is on the floor of my car, screaming and yelling, and and, and he's just, uh, he's scared shitless. So that's how it all went down. And then uh, when they were brought in, uh, they realized that they were one man short. That one man was Anthony Romano. After the sting on TRC, he entered the Federal Witness Protection Program and relocated to Florida. It was there in 2013 that he died of a brain aneurysm. He was 56 years old. With Carmelo Molino and his Loomis heist accomplices in custody, FBI agents Nadolsky and Cronin wanted to know one thing. And we just talked each one individually and said, look, um, you're in some deep shit here. Um... You know, if you know anything about the gardener, now's the time to talk. Maybe there's something that we can do to, to help you. The FBI seemed confident that the Loomis arrest would yield a break in the gardener mystery. And it wasn't only because they had Carmelo Merlino on tape talking about the stolen paintings. Consider Merlino's plan. He insisted upon having inside information about Loomis to ensure that the facility would fall without a fight. He had taken care to find out where all the security cameras were, and how the alarm system worked. One of his accomplices had bought disguises for the men to wear during the robbery. Maybe this is how seasoned criminals plan all their jobs, but these are details you can't help but associate with the Gardner heist, where the thieves wore disguises and took the museum with relative ease, where they seemed to know about the panic button, and they knew not only about the security camera footage, but where to find the tape. Other details ring a bell too, Merlino had originally wanted to hit the vault facility the night of Super Bowl Sunday in 1999. 
That's not exactly an official holiday in Boston, the way St. Patrick's Day is, but it might as well be. So when FBI agents Nadalski and Cronin offered to bargain in exchange for information about the Gardner heist, what did each of these men facing decades in prison say? All four of them individually told us uh, they knew nothing. Um, You know, don't bother me. I don't don't have anything for you. And that was it. That was it. But what about Fat Richie's reports that Merlina was going to return the Gardner art? Turns out Fat Richie put the con in confidential informant. The whole time he'd been telling the FBI that Merlino was promising the paintings, Fat Richie had been promising them to Merlino. Carmela Merlino, sentenced to 47 years and six months in prison, died there in 2005 at the age of 71. You'd think that if he'd had something to say about the Gardner art, he'd have said it. No kidding, he could have gotten five million bucks for his family anyway. And, uh, He has a family. He has some decent kids, so um, I'm sure he would want to help him out. So after all that, after the sting on the Loomis facility, the stack of confidential informant reports that mentioned Vermeer and Rembrandt, and promises to return them, and the similarities between how the Gardner heist went down and how the Loomis hit was planned, did David Nadolsky believe the plot to rob the Gardner Museum was hatched out of TRC Autoelectric. The former FBI agent, who had been so expansive in his responses, had, this time, just one thing to say. No. Anthony Amore, who is still looking at the TRC gang, isn't so sure. They were capable. This, you know, if someone mentions to you the, the Merlino gang, which was a pretty big gang, out of TRC, Dorchester, no one doubted their capability to do any sort of crime. And they were doing all sorts of crimes to say that they could have pulled off the Gardner. Um, yeah, they could have done it, absolutely. Robert Sakellis, the former assistant attorney general who was listening in on the TRC gang during the period when the Gardner Museum was robbed, he wonders too. They would not have been surprising. They were very, very careful. These were very seasoned, very experienced operators. They're not going to get on the phone and say, okay, well, you know, don't forget we got the Gardner heist tonight. Uh, we'll meet you guys at 7 and then we'll go do it. You know, that's unheard of. Maybe Carmelo Molino hated the feds more than he hated the prospect of dying in prison. We can't know. But what we can say with certainty is that Carmelo Molino was hardly the last best suspect to come out of TRC Autoelectric. Next time, two more men who made TRC Autoelectric their criminal home base. One remains locked up for his role planning the Loomis heist. The other is dead. I do believe that David Turner is going to go down in history alongside the Boston Strangler, alongside uh, Whitey Bulger as one of the most notorious criminals to come out of Boston. Probably the best thing you could say about Reisfelder is he's the most loyal person you'd ever want to meet. Probably the worst thing you could say about him was he was a stone-cold psycho. Go to WBUR.org slash last scene to read our cast of characters and learn more about the art featuring three in-depth videos. And to go behind the scenes with Last Scene, subscribe to our newsletter at globe.com slash last scene. 
Last Scene is a production of WBUR and the Boston Globe. Our consulting producer is Stephen Kirkchen. Production and sound design by John Parati. Special thanks to David Green for wading through hours of undercover tape and to our production assistant, Eve Zukoff, who transcribed those tapes and counted 366 instances of the F-word. I wouldn't mind having a fucking lawyer ready. Just whatever. He might just try to go fuck yourself. Additional production by Catherine Brewer. Our digital team is Amy Gorell, Tiffany Campbell, Daigo Fujiwara, Jesse Costa, and Elizabeth Gillis. We had help from the Boston Globe's Shelley Murphy, Brendan McCarthy, and John Tulmaki. Digital help from Heather Cyrus, Jason Tui, and Ryan Huddle. Editing by Jessica Albert. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. I'm senior producer and reporter Kelly Horan. And I'm senior reporter Jack Rodolico. Special thanks to artist Sophie Cal, who first used the title Last Scene at the Gardner Museum in 1991 and who granted us permission to use it. If you have a tip, theory, or thought, call our tip line at 617-929-7999. That's 617-929-7999. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Last Scene Podcast, all one word. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast in Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It helps people find the show. funny part is all these kids were in the parking lot with their dads they were going to play hockey so the dads they see this whole thing guys getting pulled out of this car handcuffed and they all go (laughs) they were fist pumping and they were going this is